The assignment I've been given this evening is a compilation of subject matter input from, I think, about four different people within the congregation here. The area to be addressed is how we treat those who leave the church. How do we do right by them and how do we do right by God? One person in questioning mentions Matthew 18 about confrontation and asks, number one, what does verse 17 mean when it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? Number two, what does this mean in our daily lives as to how we act around those who have left the church? What if they no longer come to church, but it's never been established if they are no longer members? Another question I was given, how do we handle people that are living in sin and have left the church? How does 1 Corinthians 5 apply? And another question also referring to 1 Corinthians 5, are we to give up meeting and family get-togethers when a family member turns away from God? How are we to deal with these individuals in our own family if they have no interest in the Bible? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Does that phrase give us the right to act like nothing is wrong? How to act after the church disfellowships? If you were listening to those questions, you may have noticed that there are two scriptures mentioned in the questions, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Matthew 18 deals with private, personal sin. And 1 Corinthians 5 deals with public, open sin. In Matthew 18, the Lord, and in 1 Corinthians 5, the Lord's apostle, detail the separate processes for dealing with each of these different situations. The processes for dealing with the public and the private are different until the end. But if there's no repentance on the part of the sinner who's being confronted, Then the procedure, whether it's the public or the private, the procedure in the processes converges, resulting in the withdrawal of fellowship from the offending person. All the questions I read you, with the exception of one little sub-question, deal with this one point. After people are withdrawn from, what is our relationship with them to be like? And I think this is an excellent question. Let me begin by saying there are about a dozen different Greek words in the original language of the New Testament that are used in explaining the action that's commanded of us in withdrawing from disorderly Christians. Now, to save time, I'm not even going to talk about those words per se, not even going to tell you what they are. Suffice it to say that the scriptures command this action, All of these words describe a separation from and an avoidance of the social company of the person who is under consideration. All of these words indicate the familiarity, the closeness, and the participation with others, which is to be avoided in withdrawing. That, for example, is the meaning of the passage I was asked about in Matthew 18, verse 17. Let him be unto you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remember that Matthew was written to the Jews, and it was written from a Jewish point of view. In the Old Testament, God instructed the people of Israel to avoid and not to keep social company with the people of the heathen nations round about them. They were especially instructed not to marry from them, lest they be led into idolatry. And long after the fall of the northern and then the southern kingdoms, this idea persisted into New Testament times. 
In the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, Peter at Cornelius' house says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. Peter went there only after a convincing, repeated vision from God, and he still didn't feel comfortable about it. He took six Jewish witnesses with him. To establish testimony, you needed two or three witnesses. Peter took six. It was that big a deal. And sure enough, after Peter returned from visiting Cornelius, his Jewish brethren protested, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. The Jews obviously did not take social meals together with Gentiles. The same approach was taken toward the half-Gentile Samaritans as well. Remember, the woman at the well was surprised at Jesus' interaction with her for, quote, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, end quote, John 4, 9. And even after Peter knew better, in Galatians 2, 12, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Even though the Mosaic law was taken away, Peter fell back, into the old practice of avoiding the Gentiles. And even though Peter's actions were wrong, the words he withdrew and separated himself accurately describe how Jews shunned the heathen. Therefore, those same words also describe how Jesus instructs us to shun a persistently sinning Christian. Let him be to you as a Gentile means that you don't keep company with him. And I think you all know how the Jewish tax collectors were regarded by the rest of the Jewish people. They were looked at as traitors because they were collecting money for the occupying enemy Romans. And on top of that, most of them, if not all, were stealing extra money for themselves from their fellow Jews. They were viewed then as the lowest of the low. Therefore, letting be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector was the first century Jewish way of doubly emphasizing don't keep company with him. And Matthew, the former tax collector who recorded the statement of the Lord in writing, understood that as well as anybody. Eating a meal together is a warm, intimate experience. It's one of the most natural manifestations of social togetherness, and that must be why it's specifically mentioned as an activity not to be engaged in when withdrawing is required. Radical, corrective discipline must be exercised upon the impenitent brother or sister who continues in sin. Fellowship must be withdrawn. That's Matthew 18, and the other scripture mentioned in the questions was 1 Corinthians 5. I think most of you are pretty well familiar with it. There are six expressions in 1 Corinthians 5 which denote withdrawal of fellowship. I'll just mention those six to you. Verse 2, be taken away from among you. Verse 5, deliver such an one to Satan. Verse 7, purge out therefore the old leaven. Verse 11, not to keep company. Verse 11, with such an one, no, not to eat. Verse 13, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. After all efforts to restore a fallen brother or sister fail, we must heed the command to withdraw our fellowship. And it's not only social eating that's to be avoided in withdrawing. Any other contact for purposes of social engagement is also to be avoided. The words used in this language here convey the idea of not mixing it up with another person, refusing their social company, 
and abstaining from familiarity with them. This means withdrawing the social intimacy which previously existed before their obedience to the Lord ended. Paul commanded the church in Thessalonica to withdraw from every brother who persists in walking disorderly, contrary to the divinely received traditions. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. These people are to be identified, and social company with them is to be severed. Paul says, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, verses 14 and 15. They're not to be treated harshly, rather they are to be admonished in brotherly fashion. Withdrawing and admonishing are supposed to be continual actions, not one-time events. The words for both withdraw and admonish in 2 Thessalonians 3 are in the present tense, meaning action occurring progressively over time. The withdrawing should not stop after a person has been marked. The withdrawing is not fulfilled in a single public announcement. We ought to be continually withdrawing, withholding personal association until he repents. The, the admonishing ought to continue as situations avail, and especially that is true if he is receptive and willing to listen. But resuming the close social contact that we used to have sends the message that everything is okay with the one whose faith is still shipwrecked. And sending that message is the most unloving thing that we could do. So I am asked, are we to give up meeting in family get-togethers when a family member turns away from God? To answer this question, I believe that, first of all, a distinction needs to be made between that which is necessary and that which is not. The question I need to ask myself in answering the other question is, would withdrawing and separating myself from a given person cause me to break God's commandments for the structure of my own immediate household? And the reason for that question is that one obligation does not abrogate the other. My conclusions on this issue are forced by that which would contradict God's other teachings. For example, suppose you have a couple in the congregation and the congregation is forced to withdraw fellowship from the husband of the couple, but the wife is still a member in good standing of the church. What is she to do? Is she to withdraw from her husband? She has no right to withdraw from him in their home. She has no right to put him away only for the cause of fornication. Does the Lord permit that? A married couple's eating together and other such activities are necessary elements of their relationship as husband and wife. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, that is, conjugal rights, and likewise also the wife unto the husband, 1 Corinthians 7.3. The Lord say to this woman, now you must sleep with him, but you can't eat with him. No, I don't think that makes any sense at all. She's still to fulfill her duties as a wife, including eating with him. But she must honor the obligation of the rest of us to withdraw from him. Don't ask me over to eat with him because I can't. And she must admonish her husband to repent. She is in perhaps the very best position to have a positive influence on him. And she must not undermine the efforts of the rest of the church to bring him to his senses. In other words, this is not the time to invite the brethren over for a purely social event with her husband. Instead, invite some brethren over to a home Bible study if he will allow that. This is the kind of opportunity we need. If he's not willing to participate in a Bible study where he could receive some admonition, we ought not to compromise and socialize as if nothing has changed in our relationship with him. 
Remember, one of the great goals of withdrawing from him in the first place is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He has to realize that something has been lost. So I can't go fishing with him like I used to. I can't go golfing with him like I used to. I can't go out to eat with him like I used to. But if he's willing to talk about the condition of his soul, I've got all night. Because I love him. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James 5.19 If our attitude toward those withdrawn from differs little from what it was before the withdrawal, they are not made to feel the force of it. Those who are spiritual should seek to restore them and part of seeking to restore them is this withdrawal. Now suppose you're a Christian father and the church is forced to withdraw fellowship from one of your minor children still living in your house. It is still your divinely appointed responsibility to bring them under control. It would be unlawful for you as a parent to throw underage children out of your house. You're still obligated to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord with all that that entails. And some of that admonition at at this point would be quite specific. On the other hand, when children come of age and refuse to submit to their parents' authority, it's time for their departure. That's a completely different situation. Suppose you are a minor child still living at home and the church is forced to withdraw fellowship from one or both of your parents. Does honor thy father and thy mother still apply? Absolutely, yes. Does children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right still apply? Absolutely, it applies. As long as they don't ask you to do something wrong, and that was true even while they were still in the church. You respectfully admonish them as appropriate, but you are still subject to them in the home if you're a minor child. Another point about this issue. The Lord obligates us to care for our aging parents. What if they have been withdrawn from? That does not let us off the hook as far as our obligation to our aging parents is to concern. And and to say that it does is getting dangerously close to the Corbin law that the Jews conveniently used. It may become necessary for you to take your aging parents into your own home. It may come to the place where you have to feed them like children. Is the Lord telling you that you can't take bite too because that would be eating with them? I don't think that's what he has in mind at all. So these are the things that I mean by necessary relationships. We distinguish between what is necessary biblically and that which is not necessary. And again, the question I mentioned was, would withdrawing and separating myself from a given person cause me to break God's commandments for the structure of my own immediate household? If the answer to that is yes, then you're dealing with one of the examples I've mentioned or with something very similar. Obviously, every case has its own nuances, and we're speaking generally here because it's to a general audience. But if the question to that answer is no, it would not cause me to break other of God's commandments, then don't invite that person who's been withdrawn from to an extended family get-together. If you do, you're putting every faithful Christian in the extended family in a difficult situation. In essence, you're asking them to mix it up socially with someone who's been withdrawn from and that they are not allowed to do. You may be putting them in a situation where they can't even go. And then they're the bad guy. This is the part that just slays me. They're the bad guy. Let's be clear on this. The bad guy is the guy that persisted in the habitual sin 
until we could no longer even be in fellowship with him. He's the one who caused the problem. He's the one who should be held responsible. And if there's any anger because of what results from the disciplinary action that's taken, it should be toward him. His actions are bringing about the problem. If he would repent and be faithful, full fellowship could be restored this very night. Withdrawal is only done after pleading with people every which way to come back to the Lord's way. Withdrawal is not done for light or transient causes. We hate doing it. We hate doing it so much that we probably don't do it as often as we ought to. It's so distasteful to us. And it ought to be. If you find it pleasant, what in the world is the matter with you? We do it because it's the Lord's will and we trust that it's best for all involved. And when we finally do it, it has to mean something. It's supposed to hurt. You spanked your children even though you didn't want to. And this that we're talking about tonight is a punishment too. The Apostle Paul said this is a punishment inflicted of many. It's a punishment. Now, it's not done out of ill will. It is never meant to be a venting of our bitterness against a brother. We're not to talk rudely to the person. We're not to be harsh with the person. We are to be gentle. The servant of God must not strive, but be gentle unto all. Everything we do is to be with our best interest, with their best interest at heart and with their soul in mind, trying to find a way to help save them. It's not vengeful or vindictive any more than spanking a child is. You spank a child out of love. You just love them too much to let them get away with what they did or failed to do. But withdrawing fellowship is a punishment and it is supposed to be felt. If you spank a child and they don't feel it, it's worthless. Same thing with this. They're supposed to feel it, and it's supposed to hurt, and it's supposed to shame them. That's what the apostle said by inspiration. It's supposed to shame them. Withdraw means to hold aloof, to avoid, to abstain from familiar company. Avoid means to turn away from. Lenski goes so far as to say that it means have nothing to do with. This is the method that the Lord gave us to get them back. Have you got a better method? Have you got a better method? A lot of people seem to think they do. Often when we withdraw, the physical family is a part of the problem. you got to ask yourself, which means more to you? Their feelings or their soul? Which do you care more about? Your comfort or your courage? God told Abraham to kill his son, and he obeyed without hesitation. And we can't keep from having somebody over for dinner. Let us walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. Paul said that the Corinthians withdrawal from the fornicator was proof of their obedience in all things. Second Corinthians two, verse nine. Now, I have had any number of people through the years declare to me and declare to me categorically that withdrawing does not apply to family members. And yet, no scripture is forthcoming to validate that all-encompassing statement. Think about what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15. And then think about this question. If admonishing is to be done as you would treat a brother, does that mean that withdrawing is not as you would treat a brother? Yes, the withdrawing is done to a physical brother who happens to be in Christ, the same as any other situation. 
The withdrawing applies to a brother or any other family member the same as the admonishing does. That's the point. Scripture indicates no exception for family in general. Now, I think we've established the limited application involving necessary household relationships, but regarding relationships that are outside of our households, those who are most familiar to us, and that is generally our extended family, are the ones who can most readily bring shame to us if we were the one that's been withdrawn from. It's the extended family that has the most cards to play here. When it comes to an erring son or daughter, this might be the single most difficult thing that God calls upon us to do. That's the reason why far too often the ones poised to have the greatest effect fail to have that effect. But remember the words of the Lord in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 38. Do not think that I am come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sore. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies shall be they of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, through the years, it's not been uncommon to see people with the long-held conviction that they should withdraw even from extended family members, and then they'll change their position on that when it finally comes time for them to put it into practice in their life. But the truth of God is not nearly that subjective. We are trying to save a soul. God just gave us one way to try to draw a non-Christian out of the world and into obedience. God's only plan is to declare to that man or woman the gospel of Christ, which reveals the love of Christ demonstrated by his shed blood on the cross. That's the only thing we've got for the non-Christian. But in the case of a Christian who goes back into the world, he already knows those things. He knows as much about the cross as you do. God's only other plan to win him back is to try to make him sorry by putting him to shame. This is Bible. 2 Corinthians 2, 7. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. We can only attempt to shame him into repentance by withdrawing. Because the message of the cross at this point has become to him ineffectual. It's like there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. You can't offer him another Jesus. Hebrews 6 says it's impossible for you to renew them again to repentance. Of course they can make the change. But you're limited in what you can do. If we let him know that we can no longer do the things we used to do with him, it ought to make him feel ashamed. This is the divinely intended effect. When we think we have a better plan and we start including him in all kinds of social functions, we contradict the Lord's commandment to shame him by withdrawing. And even if our New method seems to work in some cases. That doesn't make it right. But the typical result is that the person simply enjoys the association without feeling any shame. And those trying to follow the Lord's command to withdraw are made to appear unloving and their effectiveness is voided. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit could not have used a stronger term than to say, deliver such an one to Satan. Just imagine that delivered such an one to Satan that the flesh may be destroyed, the spirit saved. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Both times Paul uses this expression. He emphasizes that the sole intent 
is the ultimate salvation of those delivered to Satan. They're supposed to see that the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, 15. They're supposed to come to their senses in the hog pen. Luke 15, 15 through 18. Withdrawal is designed to bring prodigals home. And the eternal destiny of a soul is at stake. We need to see this situation for what it is. This is a saint renailing the hands of Christ to the cross, profaning the precious blood of Christ, and throwing away his own inheritance. That's what's happening before our very eyes. If we see sin as God does, it might be a little easier to appreciate the need to withdraw. Many, many people seem to think that this is unloving, but it's really the most loving thing we can do. The superficial view that so many have of love these days is a dramatic commentary on biblical ignorance. Discipline does not repudiate love. Discipline reflects love. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Hebrews 12:6. When ancient Israel went astray, Jehovah withdrew his presence from them. Does that mean God was unloving? To even suggest such a thing is blasphemous. When you think the person withdrawn from is getting the impression that you don't love him, call him up and tell him you do. And admonish him to repent and return to the Lord. I was asked, what if they no longer come to church, but it's never been established that they are no longer members? Well, we can't just ignore it. Love the sinner, hate the sin. I'm asked, does that phrase give us the right to act like nothing is wrong? No, the Lord does not want us to pretend. Pretense gets pitifully close to hypocrisy that we know the Lord hates. He doesn't want us to pretend that nothing is wrong when something is wrong. We need to admonish in love. Think about this Old Testament passage. In Leviticus 19, verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. What he's saying here is that if you don't rebuke him, that's when you're not loving him. Don't tell me you're too loving to rebuke. You're too gutless to rebuke. You're too scared to rebuke because somebody's got you kowtowed. You're too uncaring to rebuke. Love means wanting the best for everybody. It's love that does the hard things when they're the right things. You see a parent that never disciplines a child. He doesn't love that child. Don't hate your brother in your heart by never rebuking him for his sin. That's what the Bible says. Jesus couldn't stand to see the money changers make the temple a den of thieves. Zeal for God compelled him to drive them out. And God's temple today is the church. Loving discipline is as much a trait of the early church as we read about it in the New Testament as is the right worship and the right organization for the church. If we refuse to practice New Testament discipline, can we truly be a New Testament church? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Withdrawal is a commandment of God. Now, remember this, too. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's concern is not only for the fornicator, but also for the church. Several areas about the church. First of all, for the reputation of the church. He said, you people are allowing an immorality that's not even named among the Gentiles. Right in the church. This tarnishes the name of the church and gives occasion for the world to blaspheme. 
And that diminishes the effectiveness of the Lord's body in the world. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, Give no occasion or opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. He says the same thing to Titus in Titus 2. This, 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 and this. At the word of God, be not blasphemed. This was important in the first century. It's important now. Give no opportunity. The reputation of the church is spared reproach if a public pronouncement declares that that person is no longer a part of the body and we follow through on the Lord's instructions to withdraw. Because a little leaven really does leaven the whole lump. You've probably seen this. I mean, you've seen it physically. You've seen it literally. But I mean, in the church, you've probably seen this, where it starts out small and it gets bigger until we do something about it. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, Paul spoke about certain individuals who were teaching wrong, and he said their message spreads like a cancer. Some of you know all too well how a cancer can spread. The original word there means gangrene by which any part of the body can be corrupted, and which at last even eats away at the bones. We don't want that in the Lord's body. Sin tolerated in the church grows and spreads by the power of evil influence and bad examples. Churches are filled, remember, with all kinds of people at all various levels of faith and understanding. That's why the Lord calls them cheap, and that's why we need to protect them. That's another reason for withdrawing, to protect the sheep that are still in the Lord's fold, protect them. And other members, seeing this example of withdrawal, will then have the fear of the Lord in their hearts, just like the Jerusalem church did when Ananias and Sapphira were put to death. Sin in the church needs to be cleaned out and not brought into your family dinners to do its pernicious work there. You've got little kids there. You've got impressionable people there in the formative stages of life. Guard them. He who causes divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine of Christ must be marked and avoided. Romans 16, 17. The word for offense there originally referred to the part of a trap where the bait is placed. The bait was attached there. And it refers to any impediment that's placed in the way. Any impediment that causes a person to stumble or to fall. Any person or anything by which one is drawn into sin or into error. The sins of others can draw us into their sin. I don't think anybody's completely immune from that, but we have many people in the church who are thoroughly susceptible to that. When you become a Christian, you make a lifetime commitment. It's likened unto a marriage. Ephesians 5 And James chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Peter said that it's better never to become a Christian than to do so and fall away. He didn't explain why. Lots of people have explanations for why he said that, but he sure said it. It's better never to become a Christian than to do so and fall away. If you're not intending on a lifetime commitment, don't bother becoming a Christian. And as awkward and difficult as it may be, There is never a wrong time to start doing right. No amount of time spent in doing wrong can ever justify continuing to do it. If we see that we have been doing what is wrong, we should immediately stop it and start doing right. This is simple repentance, and it's demanded of everybody who would claim a hope of heaven. 
Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. We've got all kinds of examples. Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They all teach us that we should obey God whatever the cost may be. Our children learn by what we do more than by what we say. And this church is not a social club. These speeches are not sermonettes for Christianettes. And God reserves a place in hell for the cowardly. Revelation 21, verse 8. Do your duty. Better to be uncomfortable now than throughout eternity. The people we have withdrawn from are separated from God. They are lost and without hope in their present condition. They should not be treated in any way that would lend encouragement to a continuation of their present manner of life. May God grant us the faith to obey him, and may our faithful obedience cause many to turn from sin and be restored.